Hello, and welcome to the second in a series of fundraising-focused podcasts hosted by Envision in association with Real Deals. I am Nicholas Neveling, and I'll be hosting the program today, where discussion will center on the large-cap buyout managers and what it takes to raise a fund in a market still trying to make sense of the coronavirus. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, mega buyout managers around the world were closing record-sized funds with little trouble. Data from Prequin and Bain & Co. shows that although the median size of closed buyout funds almost doubled between 2014 and 2019, the number of fund closes over the same period dropped by almost a fifth. Big funds have been very much the flavor of the month. The accelerating spread of the pandemic has, of course, changed fundraising dynamics altogether. With the denominator effect and movements in portfolio valuations having a direct impact on LP appetite and strategy. Despite these difficulties, some large cap managers have continued to test the market. Are LPs still willing to write large checks in an uncertain period? Does the large cap model still appeal? What are LPs looking for from managers in a post-COVID world? To try and understand how the dynamics around mega funds have changed, I'm joined by two guests. Manir Gwen is the founder and chief executive of fund advisor Envision and has worked in the industry for more than 30 years, advising on over 300 fund closes during that time. Yussi Saarinen is the head of client relations and capital raising at EQT. He is a partner at the firm and sits on the EQT executive committee. Uh, Moose, if I could come to you first. Great to have you on the program again. Thank you for your time. This is obviously a very different fundraising market to the one we saw six months ago. But despite all the headwinds, we have still seen the likes of Bank Capital and Thomas Bravo coming to market with large fundraising targets. How do you read the market and how do you think LP priorities have shifted, if at all? Uh, thank you, Nicholas. It's always a pleasure uh, to be uh, working with you. And you see, it's always a pleasure to see you. So uh, thank you for joining today. Um, what I think is uh, we have to go uh, to the month before COVID-19. And in the month before COVID-19, um, both the job partner and the investors had a mindset of expecting some form of correction. And so uh, the equity markets were showing quite uh, strong performances around the world. But there were certain um, trade talks, uh, political changes, views. And so there, there was a, a general type of um, turn that the music has to stop at a certain point. So interestingly enough, the investors actually put together a, quite a defensive portfolio. And what does that mean? And, um, in times of uncertainty, you go along the US dollar. That's just what everyone's trained to do. Um, uh, and uh, also, you want to go straight to a safe pair of hands. And the larger firms have been able to demonstrate a, a concept of principal protection, consistent performance, and an ability of deployment, which is critical. And they also offer very good co-invest to different investor sizes. And so by default, um, they are the natural go-to because the mid-market and the lower cap and other forms of activity in the marketplace has various forms of volatility in it. Um, and um, you, know, you might find a manager that can outperform the mega funds, 
but you know that manager might not have that same consistency there there is that volatility so investors don't want that volatility they want that safety and so with that in mind of pre-covid um the 2020 calendar was pretty much taken up because you have to remember um, most of these investors with this um, u.s dollar focus are now somewhere between depending if you're a u.s investor or not but there's some somewhere between 70 to 80 85 percent u.s at first um and um that doesn't leave that much capital for other parts of the world and Europe can be in a portfolio 20, 30 percent, you know, but if you start working the numbers and you look at private equity raising about 500 um, billion a year on average uh, and you take 20 percent of that, that's 100 billion. And then you get, you know, EQT, um, CBC, um, the secondary firms who have headquarters in Europe, um, like already and are considered uh, from the European pool. We're not in a separate pool of money. So all of a sudden, you get funds that are 15, 20 euro, uh, 20 billion each, boom, boom, boom. Uh, there isn't a lot of money left for 2020. And a lot of investors were actually planning towards 2021. So it, here comes COVID. And COVID, the only thing that COVID did was the more opportunistic investors put their pens down, scratched their heads, and decided that there was dislocations and they wanted to find more opportunistic or distress or each one had a different terminology investors the pens are back up again 40 percent of the investor base never stopped working but they were probably one month off and the other 40 percent had to change their processes um, you know uh, u.s public pensions some of them require an on-site meeting for final committee decision and that can't take place you can't travel so how is that going to be done and what medium do you use? What video medium do you use? You accept that. How do the committee members interact? How do they question things? So those, those investors um, in the early part of this year were delayed, I'd say by two, three months. Most of them are back also. Um, and um, we don't see the denominator effect as much because the digital companies are just driving the market up because the world has changed. So, um, so mega funds are still doing very well. Um, it is a bit harder to raise a non-mega fund in this environment, and requires some creativity. Um, and but um, you know, I, I just see that that trend will continue uh, for the rest of this year. Moose, thank you very much. A very interesting assessment of, of the markets, and, and good to hear that there is reason for optimism despite everything that's happened over the last six months. You see, I wondered if I could just take you back to 2018. Uh, that was when EQT raised its largest ever buyout fund uh, in, in February of that year, securing more than 10 billion from, from its investors. If you had to look at the environment that you closed that fund against to, to where the market is now, do you sense that anything is, has changed? Or as Moose described, are investors still pretty much looking at the, the same kinds of managers um, to fill out their, their allocations? I, um, I think the, um, the biggest difference, and it may sound mundane, is the, uh, the fact that we can't meet physically with, with the investors. Uh, and that, of course, has an implication on the speed of which you can conduct fundraisings. Uh, but even more importantly, um, 
the ability to attract new investors. Uh, it's hard to, to um, build relationships over the phone. You need to meet physically. With existing investors that already know you, you can get away uh, with video and phone calls and emails for that matter. But when it comes to new investors, it's, it's very tough. Uh, it's good to have uh, resources, ample resources. So uh, for instance, at EQT, we have 43 CR professionals that have built relationships over 20 plus years with institutional investors globally, which means that we have access to these investors uh, because we speak to them on a regular basis. Uh, however, first-time funds, it's always tricky to raise first-time funds, but in this market, uh, it's probably close to impossible. So uh, I think that that's the biggest change. Yussi, uh, thank you very much for, for your thoughts on the market. Again, some very interesting insights. Okay, we've set the scene, um, and I wanted to dig into to some of those themes in a bit more detail. Um, and one of the main points I, I was interested in, in both your views on is what the growing size of, of buyout funds means for return expectations and how LPs now see uh, private equity strategically um, as part of their, their wider asset allocation. Um, Moose, how, how have both the increased size of, of large cap funds and indeed now the coronavirus shifted return expectations and, and risk thresholds in, in the LP community? And, and what does that mean for the large cap pro uh, proposition? I don't think that uh, the return expectation has shifted. Um, I do believe that the larger investors, um, the mega investors, um, do have uh, different objectives that maybe a smaller, more opportunistic uh, foundation or endowment might have uh, in terms of return profiles that they're looking for. Because what's critical for these large pools of capital is deployment. Um, because their interest rates are, are in some countries negative, but you know are incredibly low, and they do need to get a risk-free rate of return that's somewhere around seven percent. It used to be eight percent, and you know, and it's hard work to get there. So the al alternative space offers them that uh, that type of profile, and helps their portfolios attain the type of objectives that they need uh, for their long-term capital. And so the deployment is what's critical. Uh, um, what's most uh, impacting on a portfolio is if a general partner um, slows down their, their deal flow. And so the, the impact of COVID isn't necessarily within the return profile in my view, it's whether the general partners can keep deploying the money, uh, which has become important. Um, and um, what you know, we've been able to see, depending on which region it is in the world, so like in Asia, there's very little debt used. Most of the companies are either stakes in larger companies or growth-oriented companies. So, um, so uh, those portfolios have been fairly resilient and have continued still to be quite active. Um, in Europe, in the Nordic countries, um, the, the banks who were not as heavily impacted during the global financial crisis have been um, actually quite active working with the private equity community. Um, and, you know, you can see some very good deals still continuing to be done. And you know, the other countries in the um, United States ha had to kind of readapt itself 
But um, the nuance with the deployment and the mega funds is you have to remember um, their staffing headcount. And so um, these funds, and UC might have a, a comment on what I'm about to say, these funds pay the price. They, 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 they pay a fair and full price but, um, at, at entry, but they choose their targets well. And they have huge resources in terms of industrial operating uh, ability to uh, transform, build, move these companies forward. Um, and, and so, you know, and that's really where the return is driven. So deployment's still there. Um, you know, there isn't comparable type products, even though you could argue with maybe the public markets have shown some interesting opportunities, especially in, in the digital space and in the tech oriented space, you know, um, the, um, but on the whole, it, uh, you know, that, that consistency is there, but also the way that they execute and operate, which I, I think, um, you know, makes the investors comfortable in terms of the risk threshold. Because remember, the most important thing for an investor is deployment and principal protection, and to be able to get that return that when they aggregate it into their portfolio, they get very close to that risk-free um, uh, target. Moose, thank you very much. Really interesting point there around the focus been on, on deployment and um, the resources that, that, that firms have, have at their disposal. Uh, you see, what do you make of that? Is, is that something that you sense that, that the returns are part of it, but that you know, the ability of a manager to, to deploy is, is as decisive in, in winning investor support? I think that depends on the, um, the investor. Uh, even though I would say over the last 10, 15 years, the discrepancy between the first quartile manager and the fourth quartile manager uh, in private equity has shrunk considerably. And what happens then is, of course, that people tend to go with quality and brand. So no one gets fired for buying IBM. Uh, and then I also think when, as you see that uh, gap shrink, you also are more focused on deployment and risk-adjusted returns. And as Moose said, the resources that a large cap global firm like EQT or, or one of the other large cap firms can put to bear is, is tremendous. And I think uh, it's always been important, but in this market, even more so. The, uh, the asset class uh, continues to be illiquid, even though we have seen a tremendous growth in the secondary market. Uh, so uh, I think the investors still are looking for that, call it three, four, 500 basis points of, of uh, premium to the public market to want to lock in their capital. But having said that, I think also increasingly diversification becomes an important part and also increasingly access to attractive deal flows. Because if you look at the public markets, they are shrinking by the hundreds. So um, to be able to attract the best, most interesting, fastest growing companies, you need to be active in the private markets as well. You see, thank you. Um Again, really interesting just to hear how, how important that those issues of capability, ability to deploy um, have become um, when it comes to fundraising. And just to pick up on, on, on that same subject, um, so when a firm does raise a, a larger fund and, and, and it moves up its fund size, how does that firstly change the, um, the size of the companies that a manager targets? Um, does that have any impact on how a manager goes about 
uh, originating deals? Does it impact team structure? Um, does it impact deal execution strategy? Um, and, and has COVID-19 changed any of these elements of, of origination and execution, especially given that you know, we see M&A has obviously dropped over the first um, six months of this year? You see, maybe if I could put that to you again, um, how has EQT sort of thought about those things as it has increased its AUM and, and increased its fund sizes? Even though we have increased our fund sizes uh, quite significantly over the last 15 years or so, we haven't really changed the uh, target portfolio company uh, sort of size. Uh, already back in 2005 and 2008, we did transactions uh, in the four, you know, 3.7 billion EV uh, range, and that hasn't really changed that much uh, over the years. We've done a few exceptions to that, but typically we will do anything between 200 and uh, up, up to sort of four or five uh, billion. Uh, euros in, in enterprise value. When it comes to the sourcing, I would again say it hasn't really changed. Uh, we have been continuously investing in our platform, in our industrial advisory network. Uh, we have expanded geographically, slowly but surely. And local with locals is a very important part for us in our investment uh, thesis. So having uh, your, your ear to the ground in the local markets where we operate. And today we have 17 offices in 16 countries and some 742 FTEs of which 350 or something are investment professionals. So again, back to my earlier point, the, uh, the resources we can put to bear in finding these attractive deals and then also uh, develop them. Because, you know, for the last 10, 15 years, there are no cheap deals to be made. You need to work the asset to, to reach the returns. You see, thank you. And I guess it comes back to that point that was raised earlier about having the, the infrastructure and, and resource to, to be successful in the market. Um, if I may, sorry, yeah, if I just on, may yeah. add, I think one of the things that has changed uh, more recently following COVID-19 is maybe, uh, and I think this is more generally speaking, not particularly just for EQT, but I think the focus on platform investments and add-on acquisitions uh, has in increased and will continue to increase. Uh, because even though you have relationship banking up in the Nordics, the large uh, global banks, uh, they're not lending to the same extent as they used to maybe just now. Uh, and I think also the smaller add-ons, they are lower risk. You know the industries, the companies, um, you don't need to depend on, on uh, external financing to the same extent. So I think that has been a clear trend in the market. You see, thank you. Moose, um, just to come back and, and, and wrap up on this point, um, what are your thoughts and, and advice um, with respect to communicating with, with LPs when, when funds do go up in size? And, and also, you know, what is the messaging around, around COVID-19? Is it very much what UC has described where it's about talking about resource uh, investment in infrastructure and, you know, depth of capability? Or are there any other things that, that, that managers should be thinking about when they go out to their investors? Yeah. Um, thank you, Nicholas. Um, UC raises very good points. Uh, Nicholas, the, the, the change in the target company comes when a 350 fund gets to about two, two and a half billion. Um, uh, and, then, and then they actually kind of, most of them 
stay pretty much in the same zone. Um, and uh, what you find is the funds get larger, but they actually do a few more deals than they've done before. And to the point that UC made, the, the target area, the sweet spot of the firm, actually stays pretty consistent, even though these pools of capital get, get, get larger. And you mustn't forget, these larger funds also offer a fair amount of co-invest uh, to their investor community. So they're actually deploying quite a lot of capital. Um, I think um, what's critical here, and one of the big changes that COVID has brought into the system, is that um, it has made general partners do a couple of things. First of all, to UC's point, um, you know, uh, in-person meetings are quite good, but investors are fairly hard to find sometimes and can be quite uh, busy. Um, and um, you know, uh, you know, if we get into annual meeting zones, which are certain times of the year, like um, you know, April through June, it, it's virtually impossible to get meetings uh, sometimes. You can't find the people. And so the COVID period has actually allowed a couple of things to happen. One, instead of getting on a conference call or telephone, you video with somebody. So it's allowed some personal contacts to take place, which is something new. It's, it's actually created more communication um, so that uh, people have been able to dialogue and uh, they have the time. They don't have, they don't have traveling, they're not commuting, they don't have people visiting uh, every, every 60 minutes. So th there's been a, a very nice kind of um, development there that um, I think will change the way that we all work. Uh, we have to question a bit our offices and how we use our office spaces. But the big change that's come from COVID is the way the general partners have uh, uh, put together their portfolios. Um, and um, they've been very, very good in identifying, um, you know, if you had a company that was impaired prior to COVID, you're probably still impaired. <laughs> it's, you're gonna have a hard time dealing with it. But the other companies, they've been very quick to understand the concept of uh, transformation and digitalization. And I know, for example, EQT has a whole team that does nothing but that. Um, and if, what I've seen more than anything else I've actually seen portfolios rebound and uh, not take, you know, uh, you know, in the first quarter, everyone thinks, you know, how do you mark things down, how do you value? But these companies have been performing because they've accelerated plans that they had two or three years out of digitalizing or, or pursuing a certain interest. So, um, so I, I think that um, the firms that I've seen, uh, communication has been terrific. Governance has been tightened uh, to, you know, make sure that pandemic effect uh, is taken into account. Um, you know, in markets that UC mentioned, where the banks might not be as supportive, um, they've restructured their deals more into growth structures uh, and formed other, other formats. And so, um, you know, I, 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 for me, um, I think, you know, uh, the COVID in a, in a way has had uh, a good impact on the, the private equity community because it's kind of looked at itself, but the thing that really has impressed me more than anything else was the, the rapid speed with which it addressed the situation. Um, and you know, it does help with governments injecting a lot of uh, cash into the systems to kind of help economies and, and to work. And so, you know, governments have worked to kind of uh, you know uh, deal with this. And the other the other aspect was whether your country was on the lockdown or wasn't on lockdown, or what degree the lockdown was. Um, and um, you know that had implications to, to portfolio companies and how that worked. But um, to the point that UC is making, you know, I think at the larger end of the spectrum, 
you know, it, it's, it's business as usual as far as I, as I can see. And, um, you know, in the communication with the investors, it's only gotten better. Um, and, um, you know, in, in the way of the operating uh, transformation and development of the companies, that's gotten better too. So, um, you know, from what I see, I, I see a you know, very good performance by the industry, uh, from the large to the small, actually. Uh, and, uh, but like, you know, we've talked about on this call, the world is currently in a safety mode. Um, and, you know, there's nothing that's really clearing us. We can't find a vaccine. There's some big elections coming up, especially in the United States. Um, you know, there's trade tensions wherever we look. Countries are becoming more self-reflective um, because before it was global distribution, just-in-time management. Nowadays, you know, should we do that for critical sectors, um, you know, for healthcare? Uh, should we be more independent? Uh, and we can even see that with the vaccines. You know, almost every country now has its own initiative, right, and, uh, to uh, find some solution um, to domestically uh, and then help uh, uh, globally. Moose, thank you. And I mean, a lot of those points you raise actually lead really nicely on to the, the last bit of the, uh, of, of the program today. And that was looking forward to, to what we can expect sort of six months, a year, two years down the line and try and understand um, whether private equity changes at all, how it operates within this changed world, and, and whether LP appetite is um, affected in, in any way by what's happened over the last six months. Um, Moose, if I could come back to you just for your thoughts on this. Um, firstly, how does this crisis compare to what we saw after the global financial crisis? Are there any parallels? And how do you see LP appetite and the asset class changing to adapt to this new world that you know you just described the um the global financial crisis was a shocker came out of nowhere and it impacted the financial sector which had to reorganize itself restructure itself um and um uh, you know, and then that had knock-on effects uh, that, um, you know, we all uh, work, uh, work through or live through. Um, th this is a very different type of situation. Um, uh, you know, yes, it, you know, it, it came unexpectedly and, you know, a pandemic wasn't something that was top of mind um, you know, for, for, for most people. Um, but you have to remember, uh, you know, in the form of the, or in the pandemic model, uh, governments are injecting huge amount of money supply um, into the economies. Um, and this concept of digitalization is actually quite substantial. Uh, you know, you go back to the indices and, you know, you look at the constitution of these companies. Um, you know, I, I, you know I, I believe some of the top U.S. Uh, companies in the tech space are at the highest valuations they've ever been. Um, uh, you know, uh, there's one company uh, where I think you could take all other companies, um, you know, from that sector and now stick it into that one. It's so large, right? Uh, and so, um, I, you know, so I think it's a different environment. Um, you know, the, 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 the more critical aspect of it 
um, which um, you know we probably haven't spent more time on, um, is that um, you know what happens with the community that kind of works and lives day to day, um, and certain governments have kind of unlocked their pension plans to allow some early access to maintain some cash. So you know, so um, you know, the issues are are um, you know at a government level that are quite uh, um, important. And, but again, private equity has um, you know, looked carefully and um, you know, looked at the way that the companies are structured and run and tried to uh, you know, work you know, to support um, the, the companies as best they can. Okay, Moose, thank you very much. And you see, maybe to close, if I could put that same point to you, where do you see private equity's place in, in, in this new changed world? Um, from what we've spoken about earlier today, it, it sounds like the asset class is very well placed. It, it, it has performed well. Do you think it's a case of more of the same or are there adjustments that, that the industry will, will have to make to you know, continue remaining relevant to, to investors and, and the companies it, it backs? I think, um as long as the industry continues to provide that premium, the diversification and the access to attractive deals, um, we have a bright future. Uh, I, I view private equity to a large extent as a change agent. And whenever uh, do you need change, as Moose pointed out, uh, we digitalized our own firm seven years ago. Everything is happening in the cloud. So when uh, COVID-19 hit, we could easily and seamlessly move to working from home. And not only that, we also have helped our portfolio companies to achieve the same. Um, so I, uh, I'm positive because again, private equity today, what is it? Eight trillion US dollars. Um, the public stock market is 80 trillion and the public uh, fixed income market is 180 trillion. And the stock markets are shrinking. The number of companies going public are shrinking. Um, so from that perspective, I'm, I'm very bullish. And I think what I've noticed over the past five, seven years is that a lot of the sophisticated investors have talked about or stopped talking about alternative investments. They talk about equity of which private and of which public and the same in the uh, debt space, not to the same extent yet, but as we continue to see money flowing into the private debt market, I think that will also change over time. So uh, I'm optimistic. You see, thank you very much. And certainly your, your optimism is, is infectious. Um, and that just leaves me to say thank you very much to my guests, uh, to Munir Gwen from Envision, to UC Saarinen from EQT. Uh, very interesting discussion. Thank you both for your time. And thank you to everyone for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>